Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fantasy Fangirls Podcast, where two sisters dive deep into beloved fantasy lore, character theme series, and more. Thank you for joining us for our second to last Iron Flame deep dive episode. We are covering chapters 61 through 63 of Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaros today. Now, if you're like, hey, fantasy fangirls, last episode, you said you were covering chapter 64. I messed up. I apologize. It is chapter 63. If we did 64, we'd be insane. So we can look forward to 64 in next episode. Oops. And before we begin today's episode, please listen closely, as always, to our content warning. Most importantly, we have spoilers for all of Iron Flame. I know we're getting here into the last stretch of it, but as always, we are bringing the whole book, including those last few chapters we are not covering today. And of course, anything else from Fourth Wing or interviews with Rebecca Yaros, it's all on the table. So if you don't know why we're saying goodbye to Sawyer's Lake today, go finish the book. We'll be here when you're done. Next up, this podcast is rated R. We, a fantasy fan girls are adults who say adult things with adult words about an adult book. I will be discussing the seven erogenous zones in this episode today. Why? Do you ask? You'll just have to listen and find out. Last thing before we jump into our Iron Flame episode 12. If you love fantasy fangirls and you want to support us in making this dream our livelihood, if you want more content, more community connection, discounts on merch, early access to ad-free episodes, and more, please check out our Patreon. We have two membership tiers, Cadets and Dragon Riders, and this month especially, our Patreon community is bopping. We have four. Lexi, count them. Four <laughs> events just for our Patreon this month, including the launch of our book club. Shouts to our Discord moderators for putting this together. We are so excited and we're reading Divine Rivals this month. If you'd like to join Patreon, the link is in the show notes or YouTube captions, depending how you're watching. And really and truly, thank you so much for helping us bring these episodes to you. And now it is time to breathe fire. Huzzah! 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 Your girl breathes fire. I'm so excited. Okay, but we're not there yet. <sighs> not even close. <laughs> Let's begin this episode deep dive with Battle Brief, aka Nicole's summary of what happens in chapters 61 through 63 of Iron Flame. It's only, what, 50 or so pages, but buckle up, folks. It's going to be a crazy one. Chapter 61. The longest night is upon us, and our second squad is in their sector above the main campus of Bezgaeth. Together, they go over the plan just one more time. Each squad has been assigned a sector of the school to protect. They are to fight the wyvern in the venom in their sector. But if a creature goes into another sector, it's another squad's problem. Also, always face off with venom in pairs. Hooray for the buddy system. The infantry will battle from the ground. Sucks to be infantry and die, I guess. And the griffin flyers will ferry the wounded to the infirmary. And the dragon riders will protect the skies. Plus, our second squad is protecting an extra thing, the ward stone, which Brennan attempts to mend after Jack fucking Barlow went all unhinged on its ass last episode. Our squad says their goodbyes and good lucks and Violet tells Andarna to hide and damn would Andarna win at hide and seek because she just reluctantly blended into the background. Hmm. 
Sure, that means nothing. As Zayden starts to sing, rain, rain, go away, Violet realizes that her mother is starting a storm, perfect for our lightning wielder. The wyvern approach and mounted up on Taren, Violet uses her first strike advantage card and zaps as many wyvern out of the sky. But it's not enough. Like, by a long shot, it's not enough. And the battle begins. And hey, our squad works really well together, effortlessly maneuvering through the skies, using their signets in tandem, just beaming over here with pride. God, I love them. But then a venon lands on Tear's back. And oh, no, Violet is stuck in her saddle and cannot get up to fight him. And just when it looks like our Violet is about to get got, a flash of a green dragon flies overhead and Rhiannon lands in front of Violet. Violet's saddle. Chapter 62. Violet is about to combust with fear for her friend. However, we can really hold her own. Violet is always thinking one step ahead, though. Telling Taryn to do a belly roll, Violet holds on to Rhee and goodbye, Venon, as he rolls off of Taryn. But don't get too comfy, Violet, because with a bellow, Riddick's dragon yells in pain. Iotrum is getting absolutely deck-wrecked by a wyvern, and Sleeg, Sawyer's dragon, is heading off to the rescue. Sawyer tries to kick her, sir, but then this wyvern, who is just being a Dick and a half turns on Sleek, opens his jaws, and eats Sawyer's leg. Cue SpongeBob. My leg! Violet says, not my friend, you bitch, and runs off of Taren, landing on Iotrum, giving her crossbow to a shooketh Riddick, then runs up the dick wyvern and jumps onto Sleek, grabbing onto Sawyer, and leaps into the open air. No big deal. And thank God a pissed Taren catches this duo. I mean, Taren, you gotta admit, dude, that was pretty dope. Landing on the ground, Violet passes a profusely bloody Sawyer off to Marin, and Kat is quite impressed with Violet and even gives her a peace-offering dagger. But then another Venon lands near Violet and starts her evil Venon monologue and says that the big bad he wants Violet. Violet is understandably confused and attempts to get information out of the Venon, but Kat uses her gift to heighten the Venon's emotions Damn, that's cool. And then the Venon goes full-blown Louise from Bob's Burgers and laughs maniacally. But then another Venon lands and Violet decides it's time to zap that first Venon dead. And when it looks like all hope is lost for our duo here, a boulder moves from the cliffside. But it's not just a boulder. It's a dragon with black scales. Chapter 63. Our girl and Darna steps forward, breathes fire on the Venon, and then noms him in half. Yummy, venom flavor. Violet hears from Taryn that Melgren is ordering her and Zayden to the Vale. Violet tells her youngest dragon to go to the Wardstone Chamber and stay safe. Violet tells her youngest dragon to go to the Wardstone Chamber and stay safe as she makes her way to Melgren. But who is running after her but Jasenia? And our girl Jasenia has the New York Times crossword puzzle mystery of the century. Jasenia mentions that she has the translation of the journal, but she thinks Lyra is wrong because Lyra says the breath of life of the seven combined and set the stone ablaze in an iron flame. But that's impossible. There aren't seven breeds of dragon. Or are there? Jacinia runs off as she hears Sawyer is injured and Violet starts to use that brilliant fucking woman status of hers. What if? No, it can't be. Holy shit, it is. But no more of that right now. We've got to have suspense, people. Closing down her epic realization, she arrives where Zayden, Lilith, and Melgren are all fighting. And we learn that Melgren is basically ready to abandon ship. But Violet fights with her mother to attempt to raise the wards. The leaders do not budge. But then the leader of the Venon, the Venon from Russin, the Venon from Violet's dreams arrives. Fuck. Violet begs her mom to let her attempt to raise the wards and Lilith for once in her life listens to her youngest. So a new plan forms. Violet will head to the wardstone chamber to imbue the stone and raise the wards. And Zayden says that he will buy her whatever time he can since the Venon are waiting to attack. 
Wait, Zayden? What the fuck are the Vedin waiting for? Zayden, a man of words, answers plain and vague. Me. Dun, dun, dun. That battle brief was even more necessary than usual. And in fact, a lot of this episode will include more battle brief-like recaps to walk us through this very hectic battle sequence. I remember listening to this for the first time on the audiobook, and I was trying to make the kids breakfast, and it was just too much. But then again, mornings with my kiddos are just as hectic as this battle. And I've been looking to simplify my morning routine with easy and quick habits. And obviously healthy too, because your girl here has always had gut issues. I'm just going to leave it at that. Which is why I I was so excited to try AG1 and ah, I love it. It's actually easy to drink daily and I do not say that lightly. And it's making a real difference in helping me feel good to keep up with my kids and this wild ride of fantasy fangirls. I noticed I needed way more nutrient support than I used to, especially since fantasy fangirls has blown up and completely taken over our lives and routines in the best way possible. But AG1 covers my bases with high quality ingredients like pre and probiotics, adaptogens, antioxidants, and whole food source material. I know since I'm drinking it daily, I have been so much more on my A game. Like I cannot stress this enough. I've been feeling more focused. I've noticed my energy is way more sustained throughout the day. And that's just to name a few. AG1 is a supplement we trust to provide the support our bodies need daily. And that's why we're excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health this year, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and Five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash FFG. You know, my husband travels a lot for work and he absolutely loves these travel packs. He won't leave for the airport without them. So I'll say that link one more time. Drinkag1.com slash FFG. And now it's time to don our signets, tap into our power and talk about key insights, foreshadowing and our favorites, theories. Literally just the opening epigraph of chapter 61. So we learned quite a bit in this very short paragraph. Number one thing that we learn is that it says, even though there is some debate, turning venom heightens one of your senses. So I'm assuming that the whole one of your senses can also refer to your signet if you are a dragon rider, mainly because at the end of this book, when we get Zayden's POV, he mentions that his shadows are stronger than they were prior to the battle. So we can also probably gather that maybe his intrinsic abilities will be stronger as well. But I also want to point out that it does say one of your senses. I'm guessing that that they haven't really had a whole lot of double signet venom, and that's probably why they're after Zayden in the first place. I am going to assume that Zayden's intrinsic abilities will also be heightened. The second thing that we learn is that a venom killed. King Grethwild. This is from the Library of Corden, so we know that this is a king of Pormiel, not a king of Navarre. But the venom who killed him had keener eyesight. So immediately when I hear that, I thought about Liam and his farsight abilities. We don't know if that is a gift that griffins also have. I'm going to assume that this is almost like when you're an elf in D&D, you have the ability to like see in the dark. You know, that's kind of what I equate this to, you know. But also this could be, instead of being able to see farsight, this could just be any of the five senses or are on the table rather than a signet. What are your thoughts here, Lex? I was wondering about the same thing and exactly what that meaning about senses was. Because yes, Poramiel refers to Griffin Flyer powers in different ways than the Dragon Riders do. Like for instance, they call their magic gifts instead of signets. So to your point, this may have been a reference to their magical sense. 
you know, or what we know of as their signet power, or even with Griffin Flyers, a little bit of like a lesser magic here. Or it could also mean literally one of your five senses. This is referring to eyesight after all, which is one of the five senses there. So maybe if a sense is heightened, it could be your sense of sight, obviously here, or it could be smell or taste would be kind of a funny one. (laughs) Yummy. (laughs) Like one of them strengthens when you become a venom. So it's not clear exactly whether it's like a signet or a magical power or if it is literally one of your five human senses. Question for you. If you were to turn venom, which of your five senses would you want heightened? Oh, eyesight for sure. Really? Okay. Interesting. Cool. Eyesight or hearing? Those are my two. Yeah, I think I'd go hearing then eyesight. Now there is one more thing that we do. I don't know if it's learned, but more can speculate and theorize about this epigraph. And that is, when was this king killed? It's complete speculation here. We really don't know. I have absolutely no idea. But let's just wonder if maybe it was within the past 50 years. That's when the venom really started picking up steam and not just coming from the barons. So I'm like, if I had to guess, I would say it was probably around 50-ish years ago when the venom really started picking up that steam. We also know that Pormiel is ruled by a queen right now. So could this king be the father of that queen? Or I can't even remember her, her name. That was what I was just going to say oh, next. Yep. Yeah, it could be her husband too. And he died. I, I do think that it was decades ago, whether it was, you know, 20, 30 years or 100 years ago. We don't know that. I love it. Stay tuned to today's archive section where Lexi goes into all things epigraphs. I'm so excited. It's a unique one. It's a unique one for sure. (laughs) The final chapters in this book are very fast paced, as we've discussed. And there's understandably some confusion around the sequence of events and who was where and what happened and all of the moving parts here. So in addition to Nicole's lovely battle brief at the top of the episode, we'll walk through the sequence as best we can to hopefully give you some clarity about what the heck is happening. We kick off the stretch of chapters with our characters in position, waiting for the venom and Horde of Wyvern, aka the First Wave, to arrive and for the battle to begin. Remember that Violet's squad plus Zayden pushed Lilith to assign them to cover the airspace above the Wardstone chamber. Meanwhile, Brendan is trying to mend the Wardstone, which he doesn't even know if he can do because the Wardstone is magic and he can't mend magic. Lilith and her squad, which does include Mira, are stationed at the gates of Beskyeth to protect its entrance. Then the infantry, they're deployed everywhere within Beskyeth as the last line of a very fragile defense. I'm not usually in the Lilith is a Venom camp, but we do get a mention of her sacrificing her soul here that I feel should be called out. The line goes, she, Lilith, in front of us all, her three children and the place she sacrificed us and her very soul for. It feels fitting that Lilith would sacrifice her soul for Beskyeth. Now, this could easily be in reference to Lilith sacrificing her soul, aka her morals, her children from their perspectives at least, and innocent citizens for or, you know, best Gaeth here. But I had to mention it because there is definitely some supporting evidence that Lilith turned Venon while pregnant with Violet, and that is why Violet's hair ends are silver. And I just thought that this verbiage about her losing her soul specifically to protect her children and best Gaeth, she very well might have turned Venon to protect all of them. I could definitely see that. Like, I, I was never again in this camp, but after seeing that line, Who knew that one line could change my perspective? Uh, I was just about to say the same fucking thing. Like for a while now, I've been very much like on the line. I've been having one foot in each side of the line for Lilith is a Venon. And during Fourth Wing, I was firmly against it. And Iron Flame kind of changed that. I've moved that foot over into this other side of the line. Yeah, that, yep, that would do it. 
that would do it, it right there. I'm leaning more towards that she was not a venom because this mm-hmm. does fit for her to, again, her soul can mean more than one way of losing it than just becoming a venom. Yeah. But it really is some supporting evidence. I, ha- again, had to throw it out there. Nice catch, Lex. That was so good. <laughs> Hopeless romantic entering the chat here. Zayden telling her that he loves her before they go into battle. He says the world does not exist for him beyond her. This is one of those things where I love reading this in books, but if someone said that to me, I'd be like, I need you to get some individuality. I cannot be your entire world. Like I would have such a hard and fast line with that. But then I love it because he says, we do not die today. This is playing on her, I will not die today mantra. Now, personally, I don't remember her ever saying it out loud to him, but this easily could have been like an off-page conversation or even in one of their recovered correspondence letters that they left for each other back and forth. I don't think that this was an intrinsic moment where he read her, read he read her intentions about like, I will not die today. But I love him using that mantra and making it a we. I just, oh, I love that so much. He does say, quote, even Malik couldn't keep me from you. Is this foreshadowing? If Violet's second signet is raising the dead, and if Zayden Ryerson does die, and this is foreshadowing, this would be a really cool line because even Malik himself couldn't keep me from you because she would be able to raise the dead and still have him with her or at least still have him talk to her. I don't think she'd be able to like have him, you know, link arm in arm with her and skip through the flowers as a, as a dead. One can hope though, one can hope. <laughs> I love this full circle moment here. When Violet was about to cross the parapet, this is on her very first entrance into the rider's quadrant, a storm blew through and she mentioned that the storm calmed her. Now, as her mother is starting to like bring in the storm for this battle sequence here and using it for her signet to almost gear it up, Violet glances up at the sky and breathes deeply. I love that moment because it almost sounds like she's calming herself and that this is a calming presence. And knowing that her mom is bringing this storm to imbue her favorite weapon, which is Violet. During our fourth wing deep dives, we wondered if Violet and Lilith's signets would complement each other in battle because her mom's signet so beautifully supports Violet's. And boom, we see it right here in the final battle. I just love it. I also love that Zayden mentions, quote, remind me to thank her, meaning Lilith, afterward. Two things. One, he won't be able to because homegirl is dead, which womp womp. womp. Jinx. (laughs) But secondly, I never thought I would see a sentence where Zayden Ryerson was like, let me just thank Lilith Sorengale, you know, just after everything she has done to him. But I love that full circle moment right there. All right. So everyone is in place, including the Griffins and the Flyers who are on the ground and ferrying the wounded to the healers. Violet's got her bow and explosive arrows that Marin gave her and the horde of Wyvern are coming. Note that this first wave is primarily Wyvern. Yes, there are dark wielders, too but most of them are holding off till the final wave. It's my understanding that there are two main waves. This first one is coming in to test their defenses and probe for weaknesses. Then I'll call them like little mini waves of primarily Wyvern afterward that follow. And then the second big wave is coming in to destroy those remaining and overtake the veil. And while there are fewer dark wielders in this first wave, make no mistake, Violet initially counts two dozen heading in our crew's direction. I wouldn't say like towards their specific sector, but like 
toward the their area that they're protecting there along other sectors too. Like that is insane. Two dozen. And we should note in the Resin battle, there were, we ca- well, we counted seven, but there were five. <laughs> like, I think there were we five. don't even, four. We don't even, four, I think five. there were four. There were, no, Violet says that there were four, I think. So we have okay. confirmed that there are four from Violet's perspective. So there were four in that battle and it was absolute chaos and mayhem. So two dozen is a death sentence. So the Horde's formation, it's spreading out to prepare to engage all Bizgaia's forces instead of just targeting the Veil like everyone thought they would do. Again, this goes to show the Dark Wielders are coming here to wipe these people off the map, not just beeline to the Veil. And as this formation is spreading out to prepare to engage all their forces, Violet is waiting for the right moment to wield lightning before the Wyvern and dragons engage. And damn, our girl is getting good at timing. I mean, we need to talk about this because this first strike bonus is incredible. So as the Wyvern are approaching, everyone is holding back. Even Zayden is saying, hold, hold, hold. I love that he's kind of like the commanding forces to support his girl. As the Wyvern and the Venon are approaching, the goal is to basically zap as many out of the sky before starting to engage in the air. Because once the dragons are engaging with the Wyvern in the air, she could have easily hit a dragon with her lightning just as easily as she hits a wyvern. So Violet is using her mom's clouds as an energy source above the wyvern and she uses her lightning coming up from the ground to attack the wyvern almost like the belly side of their wyvern. It's so freaking cool and she uses it to see how many she can zap out of the sky. One of the things I love about this passage though is seeing Violet's signet as strategic warfare and Mm -hmm. I am fully in the camp that this is just the beginning that we're Seeing. She describes it as, quote, instead of flaring my palms, I concentrate the intent of my fingers just like Felix taught me. And then she draws them down to strike. Felix put it perfectly in this book. Like, like boiling oil. Boiling oil. Yeah. Like she's like throwing around boiling oil earlier. And now she's being very considerate, very controlled and very concise. I love seeing this from our girl. And then when we get the line where she is the composer and lightning is her orchestra, oh, it just gives me chills. Like I can just totally visualize it too. I love seeing her wield this lightning where the power comes from her and from the ground and the sky. She's just so powerful and she's learning how to use it. She's not afraid of it. She's actually being strategic with it and I love it. I also want to point out how these differences between Violet's battle style in Resin, which is very frantic and like how that hope for the best, the boiling oil. But here she's accounting for her signet. Yes, but she's also breathing. And I love hearing all these moments of like, I take a breath to calm my heartbeat. And she's thinking a few steps ahead. Her and Taryn, I love this. Her and Taryn are using the clock hand technique in battle. So, you know, Taryn is saying three and she knows that like on a clock face, she would look to her right at the three o'clock mark that's used in the military as well yes and but I love seeing that they're using this strategy as well in the air and our just our girl and our dragon their bond it's growing up it makes me so happy But one thing that I I did raise a question of as I was reading is we now have learned that there are different color of wyvern fire. And what the fuck does this mean? We know that there's green fire and blue fire. Erin on YouTube actually mentioned, quote, do you think in future books we might see an orange or black flames? Basically saying that the color of the dragon scales are going to match the color of the wyvern fire. I love this. And maybe, Erin, I freaking hope so. Well, Nicole, anybody who listened to last week's archives episode would remember what these wyverns stand for. Uh, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> 
Well, for those remember from last week's archives episode, we touched on what these multicolor fire-breathing wyverns mean. So blue means, I understand that as like the standard wyvern. They, they breathe blue fire. And then the green fire wyvern, they are extra fast. And then the ones that breathe cherry red flames we don't know, but I'm assuming that there are essentially characteristics of each of these different breeds. So all we know is that the green ones go faster. I also love the callback to the blue fire wyvern from the battle brief pamphlets where Violet was like, everything is going to go down to the mention of where people remember the word fire being mentioned in that pamphlet. I just, I love that callback and seeing the blue fire dragons. It was so cool. Now, while I'm on wyvern, quote, a wyvern surges forward, opening its jaws to reveal rotten teeth. Now, Lexi, do you think that rotten teeth would also equal bad breath? Because (laughs) if so, this could connect Bade, Kath, and Solus all having bad breath. And that might mean a deeper connection to the Dark Wielders. I don't know. Now, obviously, before I get too far down this rabbit hole, those are dragons. Those are not wyvern because they have four legs, not two. I'm getting on my (laughs) wyvern dragon (laughs) bullshit here. But it did stand out to me that the rotten teeth could also equal bad breath. I wondered about this, too. However, I do keep going back to that line from Andarna in the cave where she said that wyverns smell like stolen magic. And that's not what Solus smelled like. Solus smelled like dragon while Andarna said specifically wyverns smell like stolen magic. So does this honestly mean that we're looking too much into it? I, d- I don't know. But like only the bad dragons have bad breath. And then we have Kath, and I swear there is something to it. Again, don't know what, but there's something. There has to be. And if there's not, we... What is bigger than an omelet? Because it's going to be on our face episode. I I don't know if that's quite up there with my jack fucking We're going to have a frittata. There's going to be a frittata on our face. A frittata. What if dad's a famous quiche is? Yeah. Oh, I would do anything for dad's Christmas quiche right now. Oh, my God. We still have a frozen one in the freezer. Shut up. Oh. Yeah. I want one. Let's do another recap of what's happening in the battle right now. Violet zapped a bunch of wyvern with her first strike. Woo! She saps a dark wielder and its wyvern, causing other wyvern to fall too, because remember, a wyvern dies when its venom creator does. Lilith's squad and all the other ones are battling the wyvern and dark wielders that go into their assigned section, because remember, every squad has a different assigned section, and if a wyvern slash venom leave your section, you gotta let somebody else take care of it. You only monitor your section. Violet keeps striking wyvern on the back of Taren, and they've got their strategies and coordinated plans of attack. They're quite the duo, keeping the wyvern from getting too low in their airspace, because remember, if the wyvern get too low, then that's getting dangerously close to the wardstone. So they do not want these wyvern getting too low. They want to keep them up. In fact, Zayden and Sigale come to the rescue at one point, as Zayden uses his shadows, like, like it's like a rope. I love it. And Sigale claims the wyvern to kill. I just want to point out that next book we're going to have Venon Zayden, and this is non-Venon Zayden in battle. Can you imagine Venon Zayden in battle? It is, mm, ah, mm, I'm so excited. I cannot wait. <laughs> the rest of Violet's squad are also locked in battle. It's painful for Violet to not go and help her friends, but she has to remind herself, and Taryn reminds her as well, that they have it under control and that this is a coordinated defense. But then there's Sawyer and Sleek who are going head to head with three wyvern, including a dark wielder and Violet kills one of the wyvern with a lightning strike causing the dark wielder rider to look up notice her 
then head down to the ground to channel. Zayden goes to stop that dark wielder, and Violet starts focusing on the airspace above once again. Violet takes down Wyvern after Wyvern, and eventually there are no dark wielders left in their sector. Hurrah! More Wyvern with three Venon Riders come in with another wave. Again, it's kind of like those little mini waves that I mentioned, and they're going straight through Lilith's and others' sectors without engaging for a fight. And gosh, where are they heading to? Right toward our girl Violet and Taryn to take them out. Because hey, the Venon are noticing that Violet's got a whole lot of power with striking, and so they are now targeting her. So our duo leaves the top of the battle, and Second Squad does the coolest teamwork I've ever seen. Red envisioned whatever you want to call it. Second Squad uses their elite skills, plus Ree's incredible summoning signet power, with the alloy-hilted dagger going from hand to hand among the squad from different backs of the dragons, and their dragons are seamlessly moving in a coordinated attack against the Venon and these Wyvern. It is so cool. I love how it's written in the text. It's like, one, this is happening. Two, this is, it's just, it heightens the suspense for us as readers. We know that this is going so quickly. Like the one, two, three, I read that as seconds passing. And it also showed again, just how coordinated this was. It was like steps. Like it was almost like a dance. It, It was a choreographed dance and she's going through the steps and she's recognizing them, even though she's not actively participating in it. She knows exactly what the next step is going to be. She knows what they're doing. For some reason, reminds me of The Longest Yard when they have like that really cool football play where they're like in the mud and they're going like one, one, one to the other. No, I've never seen that no. movie. So I don't okay. know. it's a football <laughs> movie that is beyond my scope. <laughs> now, Violet, I will never unsee this now reading this book. Violet interrupts people so much and it's driving me insane. I think I've mentioned this every episode for at least the past few episodes. So Violet being the smart battle cookie that she is and Taryn says to Violet, you're beginning to think and then Violet interrupts him and says like Brennan, assuming because he's apparently this big, you know, brilliant strategist or whatever that Lexi and I have talked about on end. But then Sigale finishes, she says, like Tarn. And now this could be what he was going to say for sure. But something in my gut when I was reading this thought that he was going to say Naolin. If Naolin and Brennan were lovers, I love that beautiful tie in that he was going to say Naolin. And then Violet says Brennan. That would just be wonderful. But I will die on the hill that I thought he was going to say Naolin, not Taryn. Not himself. That's, like, you're beginning that, to think like me. <laughs> Actually, that so wasn't a Taryn thing to I say. I was just going to say, like, I, I love that's how you think of it, especially with the Brennan and Naolin tie-in, especially if they were lovers. I didn't even think about Naolin, partly because Taryn has been very clear that he doesn't like to talk about him. So I wouldn't think that he would bring him up. I definitely thought that Taryn was going to say himself because that is totally something he would do where it's like, ah, you're starting to think like me, the best, most awesome dragon there is on the continent. And then Sigale is all proud of her mate and his writer and how they're coming together like they are. And she's just so proud that it's like, oh, his writer, she is worthy and she is worthy of him because they have a similar mindset. So that was how I saw it. It could be. It would be a very Taryn thing to say. You're not wrong. I just, I don't know why I'm like so dead set on it being nice. However, while Violet is stuck in the saddle, a blonde, young Asim Venon jumps onto Taryn's back. And yep, you guessed it. I did a search of all of Fourth Wing and all of Iron Flame for young and blonde men. So people who are described as young and blonde in Fourth Wing are Liam. I do not think that this is Liam. I want to be very clear. And Dylan. I have mentioned on this podcast before that there is a possibility that Dylan was 
maybe not resurrected by any means, but Dylan was taken and turned Venom, and now this is Dylan fighting him. However, I do think that Violet would have recognized Dylan if this was him, so I don't think it was Dylan. We're like joking, but only 98% joking about the candidates, not even cadets, but candidates fall from the parapet that then it's like they're like Venom resources. <laughs> but I don't really think that, but I do love that tie-in there. It's like, oh man, is Dylan come back? <laughs> I feel like the whole Jack fucking Barlow situation really fucked with us because now we have nothing that's safe like nothing is safe here oh don't get me started on that again oh man (laughs) now people who are described as young and blonde in iron flame there's not really anyone other than this asum and jack fucking barlow obviously this is not jack fucking barlow for many reasons mainly because she would have also recognized him although there's lots of quote they look so young in regards to first years in the writer's quadrant. So this could be a first year. However, ASIMs, we have to remember, are the second level of Venon. So that would be a very quick, at least from what we're gathering, of Venon turnaround, unless they just like like a junkie, just like nonstop fed from the source. But They I also don't... don't age the same way, though. So yeah. it could be someone who is just looking young and they're actually 55 years old. We don't know. Exactly. But all of this to say, I do not think we have seen this Venon in this story. I agree. And a lot of us have speculated about these physical descriptions that we see from the Venon because there are a lot of physical descriptions about these Venon's appearances. And I'm thinking it's actually Rebecca's way of showing that they were once human, like Violet and the others once upon a time. I'm not saying that it's necessarily humanizing the Venon because they're definitely bad guys. We know that within the last 50 years, the Venon have actively been recruiting would-be Griffin Flyers. I think that it's safe to assume that there's something along the same lines when it comes to the dragon riders too and i think that it is where it's really teeing us up for a human element to them in book yeah. three i do think that like if cat and Marin, if we were following their point of view throughout this battle like do you think that they would have recognized anyone probably i think that would be more like running into someone from your past in a really big city and it's like oh my god what are you doing here like it's just like that yeah. super small world coincidence versus it being a more common occurrence does that make That's sense fair. yeah that does make sense you made me think of like you know going back to your hometown and like you know if your hometown's not exactly super small it's like a medium to large sense hometown you like go to target and you see someone from middle school or high school and you're like gah run away (laughs) so I think it would be more like if you were not in your hometown because that would be more of like an expected sort of thing but it's like if you were actually both in some random big town and you ran into someone from your child which you're visiting Chicago and you're in wherever (laughs) which happens like it's insane like that has definitely happened to me on multiple occasions (laughs) wild now this Venon does say quote you'll meet them all soon enough them all now he was about to say something Violet shockingly interrupts him and says you're sage and then he says you'll meet them all soon enough so jesus h christ how many of these sages are there now this does get me thinking we're all thinking that this is like the sage we're all thinking because violet keeps interrupting people and saying that it's the sage but they're not confirming that it's the sage later on in this battle zayden fights a royal blue robed venon who is the leader we learn later on in or we learn early on in chapter 64 that this is also the sage from resin who got away and the sage from violet's dreams i don't think it's a sage I'm starting to really think that she has been seeing the general this entire time. 
I have so much more to say on all of this because, yes, you are absolutely right. And we are going to walk through it because I have actually been misspeaking for almost the entirety of this podcast. (laughs) I have as well. Whoops. (laughs) We will talk about that and give some clarifications in a little while here. Back to this, you know, them all, which is plural. I'm going to actually assume that this dark wielder here is talking about sages, which is plural here. You know, you'll meet them all soon enough. You'll meet all of the sages. You'll meet all of the venom. I think it's really a collective one of us, one of us kind of thing. Now, while Violet is stuck in the saddle and the venom is about to attack her, which I assume he's not supposed to kill her, even though it seems like he's definitely going to, but he's probably going to, you know, make sure that she can't wield lightning so that then he can scoop her up and take her back to where he's supposed to. Reed jumps from her dragon onto Taryn's back and she starts fighting the venom, and she is doing a great job of holding her own. Violet has Taryn bank a hard right and Reed holds tight. Then Violet fires the explosive arrow and and it hits the venom, causing him to fall and go kaboom. And the phantom breathes a sigh of relief. Whew, our best friend duo is okay. That does not last for long, <laughs> though, because Iotrum, Riddick's dragon, has a wyvern locked on its hindquarters. It's biting his butt. And three more are coming in for the kill. Now, Taryn with Violet and Sleeg with Sawyer go over to Iotrum to help save him and, you know, Riddick's life. Now, Taryn takes one of these wyvern out with his Morningstar tail. Well, bow out of the sky. As Sleeg works to help his dragon friend, the wyvern turn their attention to Sleeg instead. And uh-oh, now he's the prey. As Sawyer tries to save his dragon, one of the wyvern bites his leg literally off. I do love that Sawyer was so protective over his dragon. I know. And Sawyer literally just tries to kick the wyvern. <laughs> you know? Like I mentioned this earlier from the Anastasia, like, and I kick her, sir. Like, I mean, literally <laughs> tries to, like, kick her. I don't know if this works for you, my guy, Sawyer. But it does get to a really cool moment in this story because, dear God, this moment was so amazing and also very hard to read. So let's walk through it. So the line, quote, his leg disappearing between the wyvern's massive teeth. Oh my, reading this for the first time, I thought Sawyer was going to die. I was like, oh my God, he's the Liam of this book. Fucking Jacinia, I can't with her. I know. Oh my gosh. Cause especially because at first I thought it was going to be Reddick, even back at the Cliffs of Drailer. And then again, I thought it was going to be Reddick here. And then it's like, oh, and then it's like going to be Sawyer. And it's like, oh, like I thought for sure one of our four was not going to make it out of this with all of the foreshadowing, with all of their promises to each other. I was like, oh my God, like, please, nobody die. And I'm so happy nobody did. I mean, yes, we are missing one leg, but you know what? I'll take it. I think that actually him losing his leg, I mean, obviously I'm deeply sad for my guy Sawyer. However, his signet, like you've mentioned on the podcast before, is metal wielding. And if he gets a badass metal leg, I cannot wait to see what he can do with this. Like, I am so excited for what this could mean for Sawyer going forward. Because Sawyer has been very much a... Like, we've had Riddick, who is the lighthearted, the funny guy. We've had Ree, who is the best friend. Sawyer has been the, you know, just kind of like heart of gold guy. He's kind of like the filler side character in their in their foursome. If this does end up where his character arc is going, I'm so excited because then he really gets to shine like the Sawyer. Because like I, I've loved Sawyer from the beginning, but he's always kind of been in the background. He hasn't had that like shining personality that Ree and Riddick have. This could be his moment to really step into the foreground and show his stuff. And I'm so excited for him. It is canon in my head. If this does not happen, I will be so sad. <laughs> but then Violet does something 
so incredibly badass and we have to walk through it point by point. So Violet, ignoring Taryn's protest, shocking, runs <laughs> off of Taryn's back and lands on Iotrum. She, I love how she says, quote, how's that for a running landing? And it's such a beautiful full circle moment for when Taryn earlier in the book was like, you will not be doing a running landing, ma'am. Then she runs over to Riddick, hands him her crossbow, tells him, remember this crossbow is with a mayor sight arrow. It's going to go boom and tells him to fire it once she's on sleek and I love like he's like once you're on what <laughs> like what are you doing and then she runs she doesn't even answer him she runs up the nose of the wyvern leaps off of the wyvern on this is by the way the wyvern who has been biting Iotrum's ass then leaps off of the wyvern onto Sleek's head like asking for permission basically midair just being like Sleek is this okay <laughs> then Riddick fires the explosive arrow at the wyvern while she grabs Sawyer on like who is on Sleek's back Sleek rolls them off meaning that they are falling midair free falling and Violet's like Taryn catch up Yes, please. And he's like, you motherfucker. And he does. Thank goodness he catches the duo. Holy fuck. This moment was epic. It really was. Some of these action sequences are just like you have to read them a few times to fully comprehend what just happened. I'm especially not very good at following along on the audiobook. Like this is stuff that I really actually have to read. And I just love it. I love it so much. I also love how in this badass moment when Violet does her first running landing onto Iotrum, it's Violet's mom's face that she sees in her mind while she's wondering if she's about to live or die. And it just feels so fitting that it's her mom that she's thinking of because Violet is her mother's daughter where she has the heart of a writer. She's literally proving her badassery midair right now and all of her worthiness of being a writer in this very moment. And who does she think of? Her mom. There were also a few instances in the stretch that may hint to Violet's second signet possibly being time manipulation. There are multiple descriptions about how everything is happening so fast that the rest of the world slows down, several variations of it, but you get the gist. I mentioned earlier how Violet's got great timing with her lightning strikes. Could a signet of time manipulation be a contributing factor? We can also assume that her second signet has manifested by this big battle. So I've at least, as I've been doing this deep dive reading, I've been on the lookout for those extra hints in this battle sequence. So of course, this did stand out. I'm still not convinced that her second signet has to do with time only because Andarna's first power was freezing time. So it feels like we kind of already did the time thing. Plus, signets manifest based on the writer's core identity, not the dragon's. So Andarna's power of freezing time is slash was as far as we know, irrelevant. However, these descriptions about time definitely stand out and give me pause and really kind of make me rethink that, no, this isn't it. Could it just have to do with the battle? Yes, absolutely. Everything is hectic and Violet feels like she's in a time vacuum sometimes. But there's plenty of other times throughout the book too where she's referring to this feeling of time being manipulated and just so happens that it's emphasized more in this battle sequence. While we're talking about possible hints to Violet's second signet, there's also a lot of talk about Malik. And this brings up another popular theory that Violet is able to communicate with or connect with different variations of it with the gods. I'm going to wait for our Violet Second Signet episode in two weeks to discuss this in more detail, but it is another possibility to be on the lookout for in this battle sequence, all of the references to Malak, to the gods and such. 
Now, Lexi, with all this crazy action that our crew is experiencing and the running and the jumping and the fighting and the booms, you know what they need? They need, they need an electrolyte drink that makes those cramps, those headaches, that fatigue go away because contrary to popular belief, dehydration is not the biggest problem facing riders or athletes Overhydration is. But the solution is not to stop drinking water. Please do not stop drinking water, friends. To be in top shape to fight venom or weight training or running with Imogen and keeping up with your children like Lexi needs to, and honestly, me as an aunt, I need to as well. It is best to drink water and electrolytes. Enter Element. Element is a science-backed, zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix designed to support active hydration and a healthy lifestyle. It has generous portions of sodium, potassium, and magnesium to help you feel and perform your best because they're essential for energy and muscle and brain function. Plus, it has zero sugar, artificial colors, or other sus ingredients to hold you back. That's my personal favorite part about it. That there is also my favorite part of it. It is so hard to find electrolyte drinks that don't have all the bad stuff. I mean, it element really checks off every single box that I look for in an electrolyte drink. You're also guaranteed to find element flavors that you love. You can try fan favorites like citrus salt or raspberry salt. You can even get some spiciness with the mango chili or mix chocolate salt into your morning coffee for that mean mocha. Element came up with a fantastic offer for us. Just go to drinklmnt.com slash FFG for a free sample pack with any purchase. Whether you're training for strength, endurance or longevity, make it a point to put electrolytes in your water. Consuming enough electrolytes can really improve how you feel and perform. And what's more important than that? Now back to the craziness. Taryn drops off Violet and Sawyer, who's just bleeding out on the, basically because, you know, his leg got bitten off. Poor Sawyer. He drops them off at Best Guyeth, and our Griffin Flyers and our squad come to bring him to a healer. When this happens, Kat gives Violet a peace offering. She offers Violet a extra dagger and promises to to look after Sawyer. This is one of those like, I'm sorry, are you the cat? We've been reading about this entire book. I don't think so. Now, while this is a really short moment in this chapter, we can't help but think that this is going to have major lasting impacts on both of our characters and possibly even a budding new friendship. I do believe that this is going to lead to a more cordial connection. And I do think that Violet is going to end up being friends with Cat in the later half of this series. I agree. And it did start in the caves where they did. They started building their trust in one another. I mean, Violet literally saved Kat's life in there. And Kat did not forget that at all. And so there's definitely a mutual respect and I'll even say admiration for one another. They're acquaintances now. I'll give them that. I I think that's a good way of putting it. This small peace offering moment leads to a much bigger moment in this fight sequence because we get a second venom, a heart-shaped, beautiful-faced venom. And before you ask me, yes, I did a search for heart-shaped. There's no other mentions of heart-shaped faces in both books. But we do learn that her name is Wynn. So automatically, we know we've most likely never seen her before. But yet again, we get another evil venom monologue. Honestly, I love the evil venom monologues. They're just, they're so delicious. I love it. I also feel like every single one, even though they're all saying essentially the same thing like we get so giddy and like jump at the opportunity and it's like they're all saying the same thing but it doesn't matter because it's that shocking and it's that much to digest and process every single time I almost want a venom monologue just like them all back to back to back so we can really see how I mean they are basically all saying the same thing and literally this one Wynn says quote you'll be so much fun for him to wield there's that 
in italics, he, him <laughs> pronouns every single time. The more and more we hear this, the more and more I'm convinced that this him, this italics him is General Daramore. I, yes. some, I'm excited to hear your rant about Venoms later. But we do get a new dark wielder who lands after Wynn, who says, quote, he's almost here. Again, that freaking he. Violet innately knows that the one that they're currently waiting for, once when he shows up, she just innately knows that it's the sage from Resin and from her dreams and from the cliffs. But this sage later corrects Zayden that he's actually a general while they're fighting. So again, I'll touch on this a little bit later in the episode because we have had things wrong, but this sage that we've all been talking about for so long, it's not a sage. It's actually a general, and he gives that big reveal in the opening of chapter 66, which is Zayden's point of view. It's funny because... It's so clear that he is the general on this on the page of Zayden's chapter or POV chapter. And yet I'm right there with you for this entire run of this podcast. I have been thinking, yeah, it's because I didn't for whatever reason, I didn't think that the sage that Violet has been seeing in her dreams that Violet saw in Resson who got away. I just didn't think he was at this battle. I just deleted that little paragraph every single time I read this book until this deep dive. Well, I was so convinced with the purple robes versus the royal blue robes. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I will talk about all that in a little bit here. Wonderful. Pause. <laughs> Last thing here on the evil Venon monologue. You know, the Venon are under orders not to kill Violet, who is the lightning wielder. And when it comes to Violet, their main objective is to take her off the board, which is either by making her a Venon or draining her. They're trying to turn her, but if she won't, then they'll just go ahead and drain her of her power because she is extra powerful. So I think that the reason that they really want Violet is to, again, take her off the board, whether that means turning her or because she will be an extra delicious meal to drain. I think it's turning her. I do think it's turning her. I don't think they're going to like, like suck her up through a straw, you know? But the general, when he is talking to Zayden, does say that he will drain Violet if she doesn't turn it. Oh, God, that makes me so nervous. I am curious as to why in this moment when she's having this conversation with this lesser Venon, I don't know if we have confirmed that he's an Asim, but I'm going to assume he is. Violet recalls, quote, you will turn for something much more dangerous. Why is this connected to? Because this is right after the Venon says something about delivering her. And she's like, why is he wanting to deliver me? And then it says in the text, I recall, quote, you'll turn for something much more dangerous. Why are those two things connected? First of all, I still am trying to detangle my brain with all these thoughts about Venon and the potential prophecies or these assumptions and speculations that they're making, how they all know this about Violet. Like, it's supposed to be confusing for us. But here, the Venon is excited that she is going to be the one, remember, this is still Wynne talking here, that she is the one who's going to be able to deliver Violet to, quote, him, who we can indeed assume is the supposed sage from Resin and her dreams. But like we were just saying, he's actually a general. Violet recalls that the powerful dark wielder in her dreams expects her to turn for something much more dangerous, aka love. And this is giving her pause because if she's delivered to the venom, that probably means that she's supposed to turn as the venom from her dreams has been anticipating. Also, I assume that if she is delivered to the venom, it would lure Zayden or tempt him to turn. Basically, he'll do whatever it takes, and that is what the general venom wants from him. And so while Violet is recalling from her dream that she'll turn for something more dangerous, it's also referring to Zayden turning for love because he would do such a thing if she was delivered to the venom. He'll also do such thing if she's not delivered to the Venon and her safety is at risk here, which we'll see soon. 
there's so much here. And honestly, I am also still detangling my thoughts. So I'm going to move into Violet seeing Kat use her signet when it's not on her and how fucking cool it is. Like, let's be real. She heightens the emotions of Wynn, this Ace and Venom, and makes her so like, I said this earlier, Louise me, like laughing maniacally mean. She's like, it's me. It'll be me. And she's so distracted in her own evil villain laughing maniacally that Violet just zaps her like easily on the ground. Now, Lexi, you've said multiple times how cool it is to see signets working in tandem with each other. This is cool to see a Griffin Flyer gift and a Dragon Rider signet working so well together where it's one of them is like distracting and the other can go in for the kill shot. I love it. It's so cool. Cat, stop making me like you. <laughs> Teamwork makes the dream work. But no time to celebrate because there's another dark wielder to deal with now that Wynn is gone. He is definitely more powerful than when the ASM was. However, Violet knows he is not the sage from Resin. My guess here is that this dark wielder is a sage, but the one that Violet has in mind is actually a general. I know we keep repeating that, but it's worth repeating. Before Andarna comes to the rescue, this new dark wielder states that, quote, he's almost here and that the hordes are waiting for permission to attack. We can guess, only guess so, because this is all supposed to be confusing, like I just said, that the he he is referring to is the general, who is the not actually a sage from Resin, and he will be the one to give permission to attack once he arrives and it is the right time for Zayden. Whew, more on that soon. Before a not a boulder it's a it's an Andarna steps out of the shadows we get the chapter 63 epigraph and this is from Lyra's journal and it says quote I am alone in thinking the knowledge of the wards the protections they provide should not solely benefit Navarre and it has cost me everything we've discussed this passage a few times on the show but the line cost me everything is something we have heard before at least a variation of when Brennan in like chapter one or two of this book was talking about Naolin, he says it cost him everything. We are firmly in the belief that this means Naolin turned Venon to resurrect or help Brennan. But here, we've also speculated, like, what if Lyra turned Venon as a result? I don't think that is the case. If she and Warwick were a lover's pair, and if she was going not only against him, but also the other first six, then it would cost her everyone around her, at least as far as we know. So unless she took a wild turn out of nowhere where she was like, fuck you guys, I'm going to turn Venon. I don't think that is the case. I think she's referring to how it cost her love, how it cost to her friends and how it cost to her mission. Maybe they yes. killed her. Very possibly. Well, and also remember that she has a journal that tells you how to raise the wards correctly in hopes of protecting more people. And so I don't think that's a very Venon-like thing to do. We also do know that there was drama among the first six and their interpersonal relationships. I believe that this, it cost me everything that she says, is directly referring to that. This belief to preserve the knowledge of the seven dens, it cost Lyra everything. Most of all, the one she loved because he believed differently about the wards. Fuck you, Warwick. And if it was Warwick, it could have been somebody else too. Honestly, Warwick was kind of a half-asser. He was like the six and the one combined. It's like, just say seven, my guy. Just say seven. I do no, love No, but the he didn't want, no, but that's the whole point. He didn't want it to be seven. I he know, wanted but to he half-assed it so much. He didn't just say six. He just half-assed it. I'm not going to get back on my high horse with that right now. I'm going to walk through that in a little bit because the one is believed to be referring to the ward stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. Now we get 
our girl, our sweet golden turned, not golden dragon, Andarna, and she breathes fire. Not only does she roast a dark wielder, but then she just noms him and like half, like literally ha- eats half of his body. And what a queen. I love cats. Wait, it's Did his she- head. It's his head. I thought she ate like half of his body. No, she decapitated his head. Mm, Cute. Never mind. But then she goes and eats his head because what a queen. I do love cats. She goes, quote, did you just eat him? (laughs) Hold on. I do have a quick like skirt moment because we learned from Fourth Wing when Tarn breathed fire on one of the venom that it didn't do jack shit to him. Now, I don't remember what level of venom that one was. I want to say it was one with the staff. Which means that it was the sage, not a sage. It was actually the general. We're just going to call him the general from here on and just know that we're talking about the sage from Resin. And so this general, he could just be much more powerful and he is essentially fireproof and these asums or sages or whatever these other lower rankings are they are not fireproof however i think that it's definitely more in darna's fire that is special versus the venom rankings that well so that's my question here because she does roast him but then she decapitates him so does that mean her fire does work on venom or just did the fire stun him not stun him actually but just like surprise him and then that gave her the ability to go in and just eat his head nicole i have spent way more time than i would like to admit thinking about this like it it, this is one of those things that literally and i'm not saying this just pretending but like actually keeps me up at night because yes the way that this is written it would seem andarna's fire can at minimum hurt venom in a way that regular dragon fire cannot she roasts the dark wielder roasts does not mean he was fine until she bit his head off which yes she did do right after that to probably make us question everything that we're questioning right now i do think that andarna's fire is extra special like i was just saying because it's the final piece of the wardstone activation and yes i also think that it has to do with that special weapon that killed off the venom 600 years ago which nicole did you know that we don't know anything else about it that's what I have to say. Moving on. We're saving our big and darn discussion for next episode when we get the really big reveal. Although, oh my God, we're just topping at the bit and I'm so excited. We are starting to see the buildup to that big reveal with the descriptions about Andarna's scales and how she is uniquely able to camouflage herself here. Also, just have to throw in how much of a proud girl dad Taryn is again. Let's be honest, Andarna is definitely his favorite child right now because Violet didn't stay in her saddle like she was supposed to. Okay, lots to take in here. Let's do another quick zoom out again with what's happening in the battle and get our feet under us. The final wave hasn't struck yet because they're waiting for the head venom, aka the general, aka the not sage from the present, to arrive and give orders. There's only a few wyvern in the sectors now. Infantry has been hit the hardest, no surprises there. Which, side note actually, I find it interesting that Zayden reiterates this as fact because of course he would know from his dad being in the infantry and his dad wanted him to go into the infantry and Zayden's like no way am I doing that I love the moment where it's like the second year infantry who have clearly been put like in makeshift positions they're shaking because they're so afraid and I'm like these poor infantry cadets like I feel so bad for them I know oh like yep because the second years are having to take over for the third years because the third year leaders are all with the healers or 
not with the healers. Or they're in Malik's hands now. Yes. <laughs> then we have the rest of Second Squad who are supposed to continue staying in their section, but Zayden and Violet are now being summoned by General Melgren to go to the Vale. Which, hey, nice of you to join us, Melgren. He and Coda finally made it from their breakneck speed trip from Samara, where they thought the battle was going to be, of course. A few of his aides are here as well, only because their dragons were able to sort of keep up with Coda. So the rest of everybody is on their way but Coda and a few of these other fast dragons were able to make it faster and of course they arrived as soon as they possibly could. Violet and Zayden don't like that they're being ordered to the Vale, shock of shocks, because too few of their squad remain available to battle and protect the airspace above the Wardstone Chamber. Remember, their squad is down a few people. They don't have Sawyer and Iatrum. Riddick's dragon has also been injured and is out of the battle. So Violet and Zayden are like, okay, fine, we'll go meet Melgren quickly and convince him to let us imbue the Wardstone and try to get the wards up because, hey, Brennan did mend it. He doesn't know if it'll work, but at least it is in one piece now. Before Violet and Zayden leave to go to the Vale, Kat requests for Violet to tell Lilith to ease the rain so that the Griffin Flyers can fight in the air. And I just need to give Kat some credit. Can't believe we're saying that, but yes, here we are. Because Kat hates General Sorengale, and here she is asking something of General Sorengale through Violet, who is another person that she previously really hated. And it's like, wow, she's grown so much. What a redemption arc, Kat is on. I cannot wait for Cat next book. And I did not think I would be saying it at the end of this deep dive. But here I am saying I cannot wait for Cat next book. But then we get one of the infantry that's like, like gets all up in Violet's face. And she's like, what do you want? And he's like, there's a scribe chasing after you. And I could just see this so clearly like the dun, 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 dun <laughs> moment for Jacinia, who is just our scribe queen right now. Jacinia is chasing Violet down and explains to her that Lyra's journal must be wrong because as it reads, quote, the breath of life of the seven combined and set the stone ablaze in an iron flame. And they think that seven is a mistake. And side note, Jacinia says to Violet, she says, seven, seven dragons, seven, seven. And all I could think of was the seven erotic zones from Friends where Monica's like drawing out a map for Chandler. And, and he's like, there's seven of them. And then she's like going through them. She goes like a one, a two, a one, two, three, a three, four, five, seven, seven, seven. Seven, seven, seven. <laughs> and I cannot read this scene any other way other than thinking of just in here just going like seven. <laughs> All right, everyone. I'm going to need to make a meme ASAP after that. Like, I hope that by the time this airs, you will see that meme and then you will refer back to the meme and then you can comment and like, haha, I get it. <laughs> Jacinia cracks the code. Huzzah! The only difference between the journals is this phrase about seven instead of the six and the one. Remember that our crew thought that this statement meant six dragons and the wardstone, but ha ha ha! Seven runes, a seven here, seven, seven, seven. Violet's mind starts whirling as she begins to piece together what this actually means. By this time on my first read, I was practically jumping out of my seat. And it was like all the breadcrumbs are leading us here. And it's like, come on, I'm so excited. Ah, dragons, dragons, dragons. And here I am going on my romantic bullshit because it was so cute how Jacinia <laughs> hears that Sawyer was wounded and she immediately like shoves the book in Violet's hands. And she's like, what happened to Sawyer? Like, And she runs after him. I love their romance so much. I cannot wait for more. Of it. I'm just shipping them. I'm shipping them real hard. As Violet is walking up to meet with Zayden, Melgren, and the whole crew, she begins to put two and two together. But she immediately shuts down the thought just in case someone can basically. 
basically break past her shield and read her mind. So here's my question. Was this included to give us a little wink, wink, hint, hint that there might be more intrinsics around than we think that they are? And if so, I am leaning towards Melgren having one in his crew. I don't know if I would say it's like almost like an intrinsic that they sneakily allowed to live or something along those lines. All I can think about in this instance here where Violet is being so adamant about keeping her shields up because she has the ultimate secret, all I can think about is Zayden's warning earlier on in part two that there is always someone better at something than them. To always be on your guard, even in your own home, in your own mind, because yeah, you never know who has what signet. Take Varish, for example. He could see your weaknesses and he had a classified signet. And nobody around him would have known that. And so I think it's a little bit more along those lines or shoot somebody who or like, again, it's not like a, an intrinsic, but an intrinsic like mind signet that she is especially worried about here. I think that there might be more intrinsics around than we think, but that's for another day. So <laughs> we have this Melgren meeting and I want to first bring up because it was stated that Melgren was ordering Zayden and Violet to go to the veil. And when I read that Melgren orders us to the veil, Lexi, I thought I was about to win another bet. I got so smug. So if you don't remember in fourth wing, Lexi and I made bets on about Iron Flame. And one of mine was that I bet that they would go to the veil in this book. And I was about to text the shit out of you. But alas, <laughs> we don't. So close and yet so far. And that is how I got my Barbie from Nicole because she lost that bet. She had to give me a Barbie, which she has owed me for decades after she beheaded all of my beloved Barbies when we were kids. Just talking about like the going to the veil and there is a big no-no for people to be going to the veil. Nobody has ever stepped foot into the veil as far as we know. So I wonder if it's not like a literal sense of going into the veil, but it is going to the perimeters of the veil as yeah. that last defense to protect it. That was, I guess, how I saw it, in which case then we'd really have to split some hairs about whether or not you were correct with your bet or not, because I took it as they have to be in the veil versus around the veil. <laughs> I mean, it says it, Melgren orders us to the veil, not to the veil perimeter. So I think I would have won, but alas, I didn't. But he also didn't say orders into the veil. Oh, sh we are splitting hairs on semantics <laughs> that didn't even happen in this book. So enjoy your Barbie. I am enjoying my Barbie. Thank you very much. <laughs> I did get her the Barbie from the Barbie movie. So it's like I have her right here. Hold, please. You do not. You do. Lexi, you know, this is an audio podcast, right? YouTube, this is just for you. I have stereotypical Barbie. Stereotypical. No, that's literally like what she calls her. Like she is like stereotypical Barbie. <laughs> oh my God. We love you, Margot Robbie. Oh man. Now, Melgren takes a major L in this chapter. They want to use cadets as a delaying tactic and as collateral damage in order for those who are in the veil to have time to prepare for this last line of defenses for this final wave. And Zayden asks, Prepare for what exactly? Meaning, what are the people in the veil going to be doing? And you know what, Zayden? I have the same question. I'm assuming it's because Melgren's about to abandon ship. They're about to yeet out of Bezgaith and be like, enjoy the archives, enjoy Bezgaith, Venon. But where would they go? This feels very, I was so confused. No, did I get so, this wrong? Cool. Yep. The way that they are not 
abandoning ship of like saying like peace out squirrel scout and you guys can enjoy venom because remember they have to defend against the venom still and so it's almost like you know you think about the areas that you have to defend and the priorities right the ultimate priority is the veil because the venom literally they cannot get to the veil if they get to the veil automatic win for them for the next hundred years essentially so that is why they are now going and i would say preparing for that last line of defense for that last like this is the last battle if we fail this then not only do we die but we have completely failed the continent sort of thing here because if they were preparing to abandon that would mean they have to get all of the hatchlings and all of that and then they would leave the veil to the venom and therefore let them win. So I do think that it is abandoning Bisgaeth specifically where it's like, all right, fine, that like we will abandon that priority defense here and we will keep pulling back to the ultimate priority. That makes sense. But it, <laughs> again, it is confusing because Zayden does ask prepare for what? And that's my the only interpretation that I personally see for that. In the midst of this conversation, we also get confirmation that yes, Lilith did know the city where the rebels were. We assumed in our last episode that she did know, but it wasn't for sure because she didn't actually say Arisha out loud. We speculated that maybe she just knew similar or could guess, but didn't actually know. But boom, she does say Arisha in her own words here, and therefore we know that she has known that they were in Arisha. So Melgan wants to pull Zayden and Violet to the veil to defend it, which leaves the Wardstone unprotected. That, to your point, what we were just saying, Nicole, about abandoning ship from Biscayeth, the Wardstone would be included in that abandonment there. And that's why Violet is like, no, 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 no. I know that the veil is the ultimate priority to protect. However, please do not discard how essential the Wardstone is as well. That also has to be included in that ultimate protection, ultimate line of defense here. Because remember, the Wardstone is a very powerful magical well, so to speak. And they can't let the Venom get to it because then they'll be able to gain more power. Yes, of course, there is getting a lot of power at the Veil, but the Wardstone equally has a lot of power. Well, maybe not completely equal to the Veil, but very close second to it. Melgren and Lilith are prepared to abandon that Wardstone because, hey, they think that it's powerless now. They think that it's broken and that it can't be imbued. And why the hell are they trying to raise these wards? That is a lost cause. We got to focus on the right here, right now, which is defending the veil. Violet is, however, able to convince her mom to at least let her try to imbue it and see if it's capable of holding power after Brennan mended it. Zayden eventually tells them, meaning Lilith and Melgren, that if they don't let Violet go try to activate the wards, and then Zayden will pull his forces, which are about half of the current army, and therefore leave Melgren and all to die. Bye, Melgren. See you later. As Melgren is being just this douche canoe and a half, the leader, as Taryn calls him, Venon, arrives in blue robes. We finally got here, friends. And this is the Venon that Zayden is going to fight in the final chapter, or at least the Zayden POV chapter. This is also the Venon who escaped Resin and was at the cliffs, a.k.a. this is the Venon that has been in Violet's Nightmares. If we haven't said it enough this episode, we've been getting this wrong this entire stretch of Iron Flame. Oops. My big question is, and we've speculated this throughout the episode, but it's time to talk about it. This is the one that Violet has been seeing her nightmares. Is he a sage 
Or is this a psych? Nope. She's been calling him a sage this entire time, but he's actually a general. Basically, have I been Delulu this entire time thinking that it was someone else in lower rank that Vin and... What is happening? (laughs) So, no, because that's exactly what I thought too. I was under the impression that purple robes mean sage, but blue robes mean general. And apparently not. This Venon just likes his fashion, and I guess the color of their robes don't actually matter to rank. Which, hey, good for you, Venon. You got some good fashion. Just like New York Fashion Week, they go out <laughs> in their different color robes. <laughs> Oh my God, I have such a clear visual of that. Oh man. (laughs) This whole book, we've been led to believe it's a sage in Violet's dreams, at the cliffs, and at Fresen, but we get the big reveal in Zayden's POV chapter that he is not actually a sage like Zayden and Violet and everyone else, including us, thought. He is actually a maven. So this changes things. First and foremost, that yes, it is the same maven who has been in Violet and Zayden's dreams. And therefore, yes, Violet has been seeing the exact same venom that has supposedly been in Zayden's dreams as well. So much for my purple robes equal sage, blue robes equal maven theory. Well, we should note real quick that Violet did say he's in purple robes tonight. And I think Zayden says something familiar or something similar. To this point, it, it is changing outfits. It is New York yes. Fashion Week in these yes. dreams as the Venon is changing outfits here. It, it does make sense in that way. Now, we should also point out that the Venon at the end does say that he's a general. Not that he's a maven, but from that one epigraph we do know that the maven are the general so this is us putting two and two together yes we are using maven and general interchangeably here just like how we do with dark wielders and venon those are also interchangeable i did actually go back through and read every other one of the dream sequences from violet to try to just see if there were any other hints like because i don't know why i had in my head that he was also talking more about like the big bad and no the sage not a sage in her dreams was indeed talking like it was him who wanted her. So it actually does make a lot of sense, and maybe it's just you and me who weren't picking up on this, that it is indeed him that all these other Venon are saying, you know, you're the one he wants. This sage, not a sage, it is actually a general. He is the one who wants Violet, who is predicting that she and Zayden will both turn. He is the one who really wants Zayden. I feel like I need a bundle of sage now and I just need to label it not a sage. (laughs) Like I need a sage, not a sage now. So we also get Zayden's fucking, I can't even call it a knowledge drop. It is a, it's a Zayden version of a knowledge drop where it's one word and it doesn't explain anything. It just raises about 45 questions for us. So let's walk through this moment together. Violet believes that she can raise the wards officially. She now knows that Indarna is the seventh breed of dragon. She is like lit on this idea. Violet and Zayden are fighting Melgren and Lilith about not abandoning ship. And instead, Violet is wanting the opportunity to go off and raise the wards. And Zayden says that he is going to buy Violet the time that she needs and that the Venon are still still waiting just just waiting around and Melgren says what the fuck for thank you Melgren for voicing what all of us think and Zayden says me why are the Venon waiting for you Zayden what the fuck for I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that really and truly one of the biggest questions about this book? And I know we we threw around, that's the big question, blah, 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 quite frequently here. But this really and truly is one of the biggest questions. So let's tackle it at least as best as we can here. Because, oh my goodness, I don't really know how to even do this justice because there is such a big question mark around it. So let's kick it off with why does the Venon want Zayden? 
I'll start with a safe assumption that he is an extremely powerful writer with two signets. It's unknown if the Venom know that he has two signets, but the way that they're obsessed with him, they're obsessed with him and Violet, who also has two signets. So I yes. think that they are just after the two signet people because it's a two for one combo with these two. Yes, but they are after Zayden more than they are after Violet. I think that Violet, in a very similar way that Varish wanted Violet, she's almost the bait while Zayden is the ultimate prize. Because the Venon don't know what her second signet is, they really just view her as like that one signet extra powerful while with him he has that intrinsic ability that I'll get to in a few moments here. Like again, it's unknown if the Venon know that he has two signets, but the way that they're obsessed with him, I'm gonna go with yes they do, or at least the general knows about his two signets somehow, some way. Does this mean that they want to recruit him as an extra powerful Venon or drain him of his powers and feed off of him? I don't think we know this for absolute certain, but my guess is definitely recruiting. The way that they talk about, you know, wanting him to turn, blah, blah, blah. They're definitely trying to recruit Zayden. The general does say in Zayden's POV when they're fighting, I'm going to give you one last chance to make the right choice so we can get this over with. And he expects Zayden to turn for love. He even demands him to turn in order to save Violet. Is this Venon predicting the future or is he just really good at playing on their human emotion? We don't know. There hasn't been really much talk at all about prophecies in this world and whatnot, and I could definitely see it being introduced, especially in a five-book series. So it might just be a, a lot of lead up in these breadcrumbs that are leading up to a big prophecy or something along those lines here. Like I was just speculating about his intensic ability is the only reason they want Zayden because he has two signets and one being intensic. Are Venon, for lack of a better word, attracted to intensics and want to particularly recruit them? Nicole has speculated before on the podcast, and there's definitely a lot of weight to it that maybe another reason that intensics are not allowed to live is because the Venon go after them in particular. I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> Nicole yeah. just almost spit out her coffee. I almost spit out my entire cup of coffee on this microphone. Wow. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way. I do think that it's definitely possible that they are specifically targeting him because of his intrinsic ability. But also knowing Rebecca's style, there would be an additional plot twist to it. I think that no matter anything that we're talking about, if we are correct, there will always be that added plot twist to it. Which brings me to another popular possibility, that the Venon are specifically after Zayden because his mom, who is a big mystery, as we all know, is one of the top Venon, and she wants her son among them. Crack theory. Ready? Are oh, you dear. ready for it? <laughs> what if the general is Zayden's mom, who's also a Venon, is her partner, and so he's off to go fetch Zayden for Mama Zayden. <laughs> That's my crack theory right there. I don't. I think that Mama Zayden is in the Isle Kingdoms. I'm oh, either. you think she's in? I think she's in poor meal. I think she's a little <laughs> closer to home. However, her being a Venon definitely is a very popular yeah. theory. Yep. Now we learn that the, this Venon who arrives to the formation, the General Venon, Zayden later says that this Venon thought that they would be at Samara, aka that's why this Venon is fashionably late to the party. He was at New York Fashion Week. He took a second. And then Violet <laughs> asks, this is all in chapter 64, so I'm going a little ahead, but I think it's important for this discussion. And then Violet asks how Zayden knew that. And he says, do us both a favor and don't ask. I need my guy to explain things in more than seven words. <laughs> like, 
So this is really where I have to wonder if it's not just the dream communication. Because if it was just in his dream communication, well, he might still not say it, but it wouldn't be like that cryptic. He knows that they are specifically waiting for him. It makes me think that there's something else, something a little bit darker maybe at play. Yeah. Remember that Zayden has fought against Venon while out on missions in part two of our story. Could he have interacted in more than just a battle with them? I'm not saying like a Venon meetup, but something to that effect where he has had more than just fighting interactions with them. Is there an intensic link where they're able to communicate as intensics across these far distances? And maybe Zayden is more powerful and that's why he's not wanting to explain himself in this moment, partly because there are other listening ears or something like that. Whatever the case, I think we will get the answer to how the Venon communicate with Zayden as well as Jack and others in book three. Now, I do want to point out another option. What if in Zayden's dreams, he could also use his intensic signet? So in his dreams with the general, he was also able to read his mind. That would be a wild inception moment, but that, possibly. It really would be. Well, and then again, it goes back to like these dreams. We call them dreams, but they're not actually dreams. I do absolutely think that the Venon are very specifically, I'll say, infiltrating their dreams and communicating with them in that way. But there's another level to it for Zayden. And I don't know what that is, if it was an in-person or shoot when he's like, you know, do us both a favor and don't ask. Let's go back to his mom as a Venon theory. That would definitely be something that you don't want to open up the can of worms right before you're about to go back into battle. If Zayden's hiding more secrets, homeboy has learned his lesson. I need him to stop. But I mean, maybe he was just like Violet was facing off with Venon on the back of Taren. Maybe he faced off with the Venon on the back of Sagale and he just learned this information. We don't know. I, you know, I feel like we can talk about this all day, but we'll pause for right now on our Zayden and Venon talk. We'll definitely be diving into it a lot more in next week's episode, as well as the big Andarna download too. For right now, let's go ahead and move on to our foreshadowing. We've already, as always, touched quite a bit on foreshadowing, but let's pull out a few more little tidbits here, or at least if not foreshadowing, then speculation. Definitely. I love this moment on a reread. Violet is telling Andarna to stay hidden and she huffs out a breath that smells slightly of sulfur. Yeah, it would smell of sulfur because homegirl is about to breathe fire for the first time. Zayden reminds Sawyer and the squad that he isn't as all powerful as they might hope since he almost burned out holding 40 wyvern back in Resin. When he does end up facing off with the maven in a few chapters, he almost burns out again and the maven is basically playing with him. So that gives you a hint to how powerful the Maven is. To stop himself from burning out and gain the upper hand, or at least have any grounding in this fight, Zayden will channel from the source and thrust turn Venon. Well, that does also bring up the question, if Zayden is infinitely more powerful now that he's Venon Zayden, he was saying that he almost burned out holding 40 Wyvern back. If he does end up fighting Wyvern and Venon, I'm assuming, as a Venon, then I wonder how his signet being extra powerful will come into play there. Now, as Violet is jumping off of Terrence's back, she thinks, quote, and Darna, Zayden, my sister, Brennan, they all flash through my mind as my arms swing through the fall. But it's my mother's face who I see in my mind as I land on Iotrim's back. Now, Lexi brought this up earlier, but I also want to point out the fact that it's her mother's face is such a foreshadowing moment because that is the only name on that list that we know of that is dead at the end of this book. Then also everything around Andarna and her chameleon-like nature. Because, oh boy, we're just, you all know, we're going to talk about this at (laughs) length next episode. 
all the breadcrumbs are there leading us to the big reveal. By this time in the book, like I was saying earlier, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I know where this is going. I'm so excited. And you know, like we've, we speculated back and forth wing that Andarna was royalty. And while this isn't exactly the same thing, it is pretty darn close. Oh yeah. So I'm going to quote this part here. If a griffin contributed to the wards, flyer magic would work within the boundaries. This isn't necessarily foreshadowing, but it is speculation that the wards are going to change. The venom in Violet's dream said that she would take the wards down. Maybe she will indeed, only to figure out how to replace them with wards that might make the griffin flyer work as well. And last one to round out our foreshadowing section. The way that Violet pleads with her mom to help her imbue the wardstone. Her mom will indeed imbue the wardstone, sacrificing her life and her dragon's life in the process. She's going to make it sound a lot like she's sacrificing Sloane's life, which we will talk about next episode. (laughs) I will never forgive her for that. (laughs) Now it is time to step into the archives, where each episode, Lexi educates us all on a prominent world-building topic from this stretch of chapters. Lexi, this is the second to last one of Empyrean for a while. I know. What are we going to do? I don't know. What are we going to call it? Oh, oh, wait, well, we know what we're going to Yeah, I do Should know what it's going to be called. We'll, we'll hold we'll hold off. We'll, we'll show that in the Akatara intro episode. Today's archives topic was actually highly requested among our Instagram followers when I did a little Q&A about what should we do for our archives. And then I took the top ones to vote for the Patreon Dragon Riders. And oh my gosh, they made it very loud and clear that this is the answer here. We are covering what we know about the texts and people in Fourth Wing and Iron Flames epigraphs. I'll be completely honest. It threw me for a little bit of a loop topic here. So it's going to look a little bit different. We're not going to have time to go over every epigraph and we're going to treat this more as source material within the story with a focus on the people who wrote them and their general themes rather than the context speculation, which we mostly cover in our Dawn Signet Power section here. So let's kick it off with what the heck is an epigraph? Because Nicole and I wondered this before we started our deep dives here. And in fact, I think we even were calling them the chapter headers for a while until someone very politely corrected us. (laughs) Each chapter in I Iron Flame and Fourth Wing begins with an epigraph. They range from a single line to a paragraph and are written by Rebecca Yaros as fictional excerpts from texts within the world of the series. They're a fantastic device to provide more context, where you don't miss the story you're reading if you skip over them, but they're full of that additional context and layers to the stories, to our character situations, and it's a great world-building device given to the reader in a straightforward way. Let's dive into these epigraph texts and put them into three sections here. Navarian texts, poor meal texts, and then additional correspondence. So let's start with the Navar texts, specifically in Biscayeth. First and foremost, we have the Biscayeth War College Code of Conduct. Super straightforward. This is the rule book of Biscayeth War College. Now let's dive into the texts that would specifically relate to the Writer's Quadrant. We have the Dragon Writer's Codex. This is a sacred text of the Writer's Quadrant, aka their rule book. It's notable that all four quadrants obey the Biscayeth War College Code of Conduct, but the writer's first responsibility is to the Dragon Writer's Codex, which overrules anything in the Code of Conduct, hence making it a literal fact that writers abide by their own rules. 
Even when our crew goes to Arisha, they uphold this Dragon Riders Codex, which goes to show how ingrained it is in their culture and way of right versus wrong. The next text we have is Major Ofrenda's Guide to the Riders Quadrant, Unauthorized Edition. There is a surprising number of epigraphs from this text in both books because it offers subjective insights and context into our story, specifically about the Riders Quadrant. Like the title implies, it's an unofficial guide to the Riders Quadrant. I don't know what exactly these unauthorized editions mean, but I'm going to assume that it's more of a casual text here. Next up, we have Colonel Kaori's Field Guide to Dragonkind. This was written by our one and only Professor Kaori, a dragon writer who has dedicated his life to dragons and the Empyrean. His signet is an illusionist where he can project an image of his imagination into real life, which makes him invaluable for teaching. So he is one of the few permanent professors at Bisgaeth teaching dragons. In class. Next up, we have Magic, a Universal Study for Writers by Colonel Emazine Ruthorn. This epigraph gave me pause and it's worth mentioning because it discusses how magic at its core demands balance. And it is not the wielder who determines the price. It's the chapter 60 epigraph for the big reveal that Jack is indeed a venom. So it's interesting that this is a writer's quadrant text because it makes me assume that this author was referring to more than just writers. Unless he's just talking about burnout, but again, it's the epigraph before a Venon-centric chapter, leading me to believe that this is a Navarre text alluding to Venon and the dangers of magic like us all things in balance. Because remember, we're not supposed to know anything about Venon. Venon do not exist. There is no other kind of magic. Don't worry about that. We also get several memoirs from notable Dragon Rider leaders. One in particular is My Time as a Cadet, a memoir by General Augustine Melgren. Okay, everyone, I would love to read this because maybe it gives a proper explanation we're all looking for about his signet. Actually, probably not. He's smart enough to know it needs like an air of mystery to it, but still. I also love this idea that Melgren just like sat down and wrote a book one day. Like it's like, you know, Augustine Melgren, general of Navarian army, also author. Like I just love that that's like part of his title. Another memoir is Tactics, a personal memoir by Lieutenant Liren Pancheck. Oh, hey, Pancheck. He was the commandant and the head of the writer's quadrant. Now it's notable that this was written before he became colonel when he was just a lieutenant. There's a lot of speculation about who will take Lilith's place now that she's no longer with us, womp womp. And I think that if anyone does, it's going to be Pancheck here. So we'll keep a lookout for that colonel moving over into general status there. While unofficial, we of course have to mention the Book of Brennan. Brennan wrote this How to Survive in the Writer's Quadrant guide for Mira before she entered the quadrant. And then of course Mira passed it down to Violet who found it very, very helpful. Okay, so that's it for the text specifically related to the Writer's Quadrant. There is one text that I want to mention in regard to the Healer's Quadrant, which is Major Frederick's Modern Guide for Healers. These three epigraphs from this text specifically refer to mending and poisons. I love that. You know, mending is definitely a writer quality. However, it really bleeds into the Healer's Quadrant. No pun intended there. All right, now let's move on to the texts from the scribes. First and foremost, we have Navarre, an unedited history by Colonel Lewis Markham. Ah, yes, Professor Markham, Mr. Evil Scribe himself, who keeps the venom hush-hush at all costs. He is the master at propaganda and twisting words and 
subsequently history at his will. Ironically, this is actually a very edited history when he calls it an unedited history. Another one here is Colonel Daxton's Guide to Excelling in the Scribe Quadrant. So I will say that Daxton was on my short list of potential Papa Sorengale epigraph candidates. As you might recall, in our Patreon live Q&A a few months ago, there was the idea that maybe Papa Sorengale, whose name we do not know yet, has been on the page, but as an author of one of the epigraphs. So I've been trying to kind of dive into that to see if there are any hints. So I'm going to be calling those out here. There's Don't get too excited. I don't, it's nothing crazy that I have going Too late, me, too but. late. I'm too excited because I just <laughs> looked up his name and what it means. And Daxton means warrior who conquers great obstacles. Well, isn't that interesting? That's, and I also want to note that it's Colonel Daxton. There's no last name. So it could be Daxton Sorengale. Well, that's some investigative work right there. I was actually going to say that because Violet jokes that this book wasn't as useful as she thought it would be the first time she read it. I actually I didn't cross him off my list, but he did go down a few pegs because I felt like if she was speaking about her father, she would have said it a little bit differently, especially with Zayden when they're trying to be more open with one another. However, you never know because the joke of it is not necessarily that she's simply reading it, but that she did not find her dad's literature as helpful as she wanted. What if he was also going? under a alias name. That's another possibility. The next text is United Navarre, a study in survival by Grotto Burnell, curator of the scribe Quadrant. As a text about Navarre, it's fitting that it discusses how the green dragons offered their ancestral hatching grounds for the good of dragon kind and the wards of Navarre were woven by the first six at what is now Biscayeth War College. Also, I will say one more thing about Papa Sorengale. I eliminated any of the curators of the Scribe Quadrant because he was not the curator of the Scribe Quadrant. Correct. So we know that none of the none of these scribes were him. Last little bit here for the Navarian texts. So we do have several official Navarian correspondents. I'm not going to list all of them because, again, don't have that kind of time. But one in particular is the Tirish Rebellion, an official brief for King Tari by General Lilith Sorengale. This is the epigraph where Mama Sorengale is officially on the record of being in direct disagreement with General Melgren's orders that the children of the rebel leaders must watch their parents' executions. She goes on to say, no child should watch their parents put to death which she sacrifices herself in front of her children and they have to helplessly watch her die. Not exactly the same thing, but there are definitely parallels there. She died for her kingdom, not unlike the rebellion leaders as well. Another official correspondence is recommendation for award for Mira Sorengale from Major Potsdam to General Sorengale. And this recommendation was for Mira to receive the Star of Navarre. But if the criteria is not met, which this major assures it has been, downgrading to the Order of the Talon would be a shame, but sufficient. Well, Mira does only get the Order of the Talon. The fact that this went through their mom makes me wonder if Lilith prevented her daughter from receiving this higher honor which actually kind of surprised me because they have mutual respect for each other. And I would imagine that Lilith would be happy about it in her own Lilith way. Moving on, the official notice from Commandant Panchek to General Sorengale. And it's about how Mira was the target of an assassination attempt, but good thing she dispatched it quickly. This is showing that assassination attempts are not only common, but it's also not a first for Sorengales, and their mom definitely has enemies. Which it's also important to point out that Mira was in the writer's quadrant during the rebellion years. So yes, her mom definitely had some enemies, not only from poor male, 
but in the civil war that was currently going on too. Next text we have here is memorandum from Professor Carr to General Sorengale. Again, we have more about Mira, this time from shitty teacher Professor Carr, who says she can't produce her own wards without extreme emotional distress. And last but not least, we have missive from Lieutenant Colonel de Grincy from Samara Outpost to General Melgren. This is the missive about Major Burton Verish, who just killed three prisoners during interrogation, so he should be reassigned from active wing until further notice. And where does General Melgren and co. put him? In charge of the students in interrogation class, of course. We talked about this so much earlier and was speculating about it, so I'm not going to go into any details right here, but it's just wild that they did this instead of putting him in active duty where he was killing prisoners to putting him in charge of not interrogation class because that was Professor Grady, but the actual interrogation. And guess what? Students are dying. Second years are dying. And I just don't get me started on that. Back to archives, specifically a little bit more about Colonel DeGrincy. They head the Samara outpost. And remember that DeGrincy has some tough rules at Samara. You want a weekend pass? Fight for it. You want to keep it? You better be good enough to defend it, as we remember Zayden doing earlier on in part one. There are multiple Navarian proclamation epigraphs, but I'm going to highlight one of my favorites. Quote, you're all cowards. Redacted last words from Fen Ryerson. Notable that this was redacted. There's another description somewhere in one of the two books, I can't remember, that Fen went mad in his final days and his last words were just from a crazed man. I'm not so sure that he did go crazy or that he was mad. I think that this was more propaganda from Navarre to cover their tracks of whatever he was rambling on about. Maybe, say, Venon? Also, quick note, remember that Van Ryerson, head of his house, was in infantry. Another few epigraphs are public notices transcribed by Cyrilla Neilwert. Hey, we know that last name. That is Jasenia's last name. So we can infer that her mother or aunt or another related female family member transcribed these public notices about Arisha. Now let's talk about miscellaneous Navarre texts. Effective uses of wild and cultivated herbs by Captain Lawrence Medina. The only reason that I think that this epigraph is particularly notable is that Captain Lawrence Medina is on my short list of Papa Sorengale candidates. Markham starts bringing scribes into the truth or a propaganda version of it when they reach captain or major. So while captain is a lower rank, it would be fitting for Papa Sorengale to then be receiving this information. So he is high enough in the rankings where he knows the truth or is told a version of the truth. Also, because his wife, the general, is a big scary person, I just don't see Papa Sorengale equaling her in rank. That's just not what he's after as a scribe. He's got like, you know, like those really big, loud personalities and then they're married to like quieter, more introverted people. That is exactly what I see from Mama and Papa Sorengale here. Papa Sorengale was also particularly good at poisons and this epigraph's text is literally the book about them. Of course, this is a different last name than Sorengale, but we don't know for certainty that his last name was also Sorengale. So this is pure speculation. The Journey of the First Six, a secondhand account by Sagar Olsen, first curator of the scribe quadrant BWC, Biscayeth War College, translated into the common language by Captain Madeline Carlos, 12th curator of the scribe quadrant BWC, translated and redacted for academic consumption by Colonel Pinus Carland, 27th curator of the scribe quadrant, BWC. Oh my God. 
I'm tired just reading that. This goes to show how much history has tucked the first six narrative away. Just to kick us off here, it's a secondhand account from the first curator, which actually, okay, that does make sense. The first six told this curator their story, hence making it a secondhand. And then it was translated into the common tongue from the 12th curator. Eh, that checks out too, as they combined all of the languages at unification, but it probably took some time for them to all truly come together and merge with that common language, which by the way, the common language was originally from Chaldir, which is where the king resides and it is the capital of Navarre. Okay, and then we get a second translation, third edition from the 27th curator of the scribe quadrant. And haha, it is redacted. So if the 27th curator is after 200 years, because remember, it was after 200 years when the Venon got wiped off the history books, that would mean that each of these scribe curators was only the curator of the quadrant for 7.5 years on average. That is a bit of a short time, but honestly, people died a lot back then. Maybe there was some kind of rotation. It wasn't just for life. I don't know exactly, but that that's my headcanon is that this 27th curator with the redacted version is the one who made sure that the Venon were erased from history in this telling. Remember that in Fourth Wing, Violet remembers that there's only 400 years of history in the archives, but there's 600 years of history in all of Navarre. So when we say that 200 years, that delta of the 200 years is that first 200 years, and then the 400 years of archives history began after that. Correct, after the Venon had been wiped off, yes. So the next text we have here is The Griffins of Pormiel, A Study in Combat by Major Garion Savoy. This text offers caution in underestimating griffin riders' powers because they're particularly skilled at mind work. Note that this author says griffin rider. People who understand their culture and respect it call them flyers, like how they like to be called. Those who don't or don't care or who are ignorant, aka most of Navarre, they call them griffin riders. All right, next epigraph. On Tierish History, a Complete Accounting, third edition by Captain Fitzgibbons. Hey, that's another name we recognize. Captain Fitzgibbons is a scribe assigned to the writer's quadrant who reads the death roll every morning, among other responsibilities. His role at Biscayeth didn't really fit this epigraph, which is about Tierish History. What? what if? Do you remember how there is a note to Lieutenant Colonel Isari from Biscayeth? What if it's Captain Fitzgibbons who's writing to Lieutenant Colonel Isari in the beginning chapter of this book? I love that so much. However, <laughs> Zayden does make it very clear that they do not have any scribes on their Fuck, side. But right. I love yeah, that idea. Right, right. <laughs> Damn it. So Captain Fitzgibbons' role at Biscayeth, like I said, didn't really fit this epigraph, which is explaining Ryerson House. And again, that made me just wonder more about him and his bigger role and historical expertise. If only we didn't have that line, I would totally be on board with that. I'm so sad. <laughs> Last but not least, before we move into the poor meal epigraph texts, the fables of the Baron. Ah, yes, the forbidden text. It tells of the three brothers' origin story and tees up Wyvern Forest before the big Bresson battle. This was the forbidden text that Papa Sorengale read to his kids and that Violet kept. It was like her comfort book. Mira made sure to give this book back to her in Fourth Wing, as you will all remember. Now we got all of the Navarian epigraphs and their texts. Now let's move on to Pormiel. Again, this is not a comprehensive summary of epigraphs, but I'm going to pull out notable ones that I can provide 
little bit more context for because I don't have as much context for these ones as I had for Navarre. Let's kick it off with, while technically Navarre, there are a few Orisha and Tirish texts to mention here. The Tirish Rebellion, A Forbidden History by Colonel Felix Geralt. If I had to guess, this text definitely is not in the archives. And hey, it's by Felix, our favorite signet trainer. This epigraph notes that when Finn Ryerson needed allies, the first was Viscount Takaris of Poromil's Krovla. And I wonder what secured this alliance. Hmm, a betrothal perhaps? Yes, that's exactly what it is. So I just love that right there. I also just love that our guy Felix is in the epigraphs in a way that we hadn't really expected it to be. And while we know that he did come from Navarre because he is a dragon rider, his alliances have obviously shifted as he's one of the assembly members for the revolution. Speaking of the revolution, we also have the Arisha Accord. This is the epigraph about how flyers and riders join as unified squads. So this is one of the only epigraphs that was written and came to be in our story timeline, which I really liked being able to see kind of like history being made as it's happening here. We don't know anything else about the Orisha Accord. My guess is it's something similar to a code of conduct, but we will definitely keep an eye out for it in future epigraphs. I could see it playing a bigger role later on. Now let's really get into the Boromil texts, the canon of the flyer. Because this doesn't have an author, I'm inclined to think that it's similar to the Bisgaeth Code of Conduct, a guide to being a flyer essentially here. And Pormiel has a lot of texts on Venon. Thank goodness, if only Brennan would let Violet read them. Captain Lyra Dorel's Guide to Vanquishing the Venon, Property of Cliff Spain Academy. There are multiple epigraphs from this text, which give valuable information about Venon. This text primarily covers the recent history and movement of Venon, as well as how to kill them, which is of course, fitting for the title here. The next text we have on Venon is Venon, a compendium by Captain Drake Cordella, the Nightwing Drift. Hey, that's another name we know. Drake is Serena and Kat's cousin, the one Serena tried to set Mira up with. Thank you for giving us one of the most informative epigraphs, Drake, which was the Venon info dump that gives us all of the rankings that we refer to so often. I didn't know that was from Drake. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, we're going to meet him and I'm really shipping him and Mira now. Unless Mira and Serena. <laughs> I hope he's the Bill Weasley of this world. I hope he walks in and he is just... Mm, mm. Wait. Okay, so just saying, he's part of the Nightwing Drift. What if we get another Shadow Daddy? Like, obviously, he won't have the same kind of shadow-wielding powers because they don't have signets, blah, blah, blah. But what if we have another... Oh my God, don't get my hopes up like that. <laughs> So that's all I got here from Pormil. Again, there are several other epigraphs, but I didn't have additional context on them. So now let's move on to the last section here, which is recovered correspondence. Oh man, there is a lot of recovered correspondence of Lieutenant Zayden Ryerson to Cadet Violet Sorengale. The fandom is very nervous about this recovered wording. And while we have talked about it in previous episodes, here's my two cents. But again, this is only my opinion. It's just that it's recovered from their belongings or, you know, like think about when big historical events happen and there's correspondence of the big head honcho people during those historical events, you kind of want to take it from them and put it up in a museum, not take it from like in a non-consensual way, but like a, but you know, like in a memoriam kind of way there. So that's really how I see this recovered correspondence language. It does not necessarily mean that they are dead because there is other recovered correspondence from the one person we know survives the series, which is Desenia, because she transcribes this whole series of events into the modern language. 
and it also refers to her as Cadet Jasenia Neilwert versus you know, Jasenia, the curator of the scribe quadrant. So it is referring to whatever their rank is at the time of the correspondence or at the time of the authorship. This correspondence is so cute with how it shows so many great Zayden insights into his life. For instance, about Garrick and how he's like Dane, but ha, trustworthy. I always love that line. Him admitting that Segale bonded his grandfather. That was a huge info dump right there. That his dad was in the infantry and wanted Zayden to go in there as well. How it feels to be loved again. Oh my gosh, that one in particular, my heart. And how much he regrets his last words to his dad. He shares so much in these corresponding letters and so cute. The last missive here that is notable that we will definitely be talking about in our next final episode is missive from Lieutenant Colonel Nolan Colbercy to General Loth Sorengale. I just want to note right now that as of the present time in our story, Nolan is a colonel, which means that this is an old correspondence. And it's talking about only being able to control, not cure, venom. We will talk so much more about that in next week's episode. With that, everyone, I'll leave us here for today's archives. Because again, I could talk about these epigraphs all day and I'm just going to stop right there. <laughs> I am foaming at the mouth to talk about that last one because, oh boy, that'll be a lot next episode. It is time to close out this penultimate Iron Flame deep dive episode, or at least chapter by chapter deep dive with taking flight with our favorite moments. Lexi, kick us off. Oh, the camaraderie and love between our second squad is just the sweetest thing throughout this whole stretch of chapters. The way that they admit how scared they are before the battle, the final bits of advice Violet gives them, having been the only one who has been in battle before, and their promises and reminders to not die today, that they will all make it to graduation. And then, of course, everything that actually happened in the battle with their teamwork and their coordinated defense and just like how they work together. I just absolutely love it so much. Sawyer giving Violet the download about Jasenia and why she insisted on coming to Besgaeth for the battle. It just shows that, A, they talked, they meaning Jasenia and Sawyer, talked before the battle, which props to Sawyer for learning sign language so freaking quickly. And B, because he learns, unless they have like a translator, which they might, but I'm going to choose to believe that he's just been studying real hard. And B, it also shows that they are moving quite into a relationship because they know where each other are during a big battle and it makes me so happy I love these two protect them at all costs I will not deal with another Liam I also love how Ree reminds Violet who is so worried about Jasenia's safety that Jasenia has just as much right to risk her life as they do this calls back to precisely what Jasenia told Violet and asked of her before Violet told her squad about Venon at all I love this line after Taryn chastises Violet for focusing on her friends and not the mission she says in her inner monologue to this says quote Trusting my friends to do their part feels a lot like ignoring them too. Every people pleaser felt this on a spiritual experience. Like that was like, oh, ouch. Thanks, Violet. I heard a lot. Also, after Kat praises Violet for being brave in her sky maneuver with Sawyer, Violet says that Kat would have done the same. And Kat says back, I would have run faster. Queen. There's that cat we know. <laughs> Melgren tries to look down at Zayden, but Zayden is at least an inch taller, so Melgren is like physically not able to do what he's trying to do. And let's just be clear, Zayden is super tall, so that means Melgren probably is used to being the tallest guy in the room. And while we're just talking about Melgren right now, I love that he calls it a revolution instead of a rebellion. As we've noted on the podcast before, there is such an intentional difference and Violet knows it. And hey, Melgren does too. We did it. 
that is it, folks. Next episode, we will be covering chapters 64 through 66, aka the end of Iron Flame. And while it will be the end of our chapter deep dive, we will have one final Iron Flame episode where we go through possible second signets for Violet. That'll be a fun one. I'm very excited. Thank you, as always, to our executive producer, Hayden, a.k.a. our sanity manager. We love you. And if you're interested in more content, more events, wanting to join a book club, all of the things, please join our Patreon party. Link is in the show notes. We also recently launched our monthly newsletter. It's totally free for everybody to get more content that way. Link in the show notes. And if you're not following us on social media, what are you doing? Give us a follow on Instagram and TikTok at Fantasy Fangirls Pod. Also, do not forget to rate and review the show on whatever platform you are watching slash listening on. It takes two seconds. It is one of the most helpful things that you can do for the show for Lexi and I. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, write a little love note in that review section. If you're listening on Spotify, hit that five-star button. And if you're watching on YouTube, Go ahead and like and subscribe as well. Did you know that there's over 10,000 people subscribed now to our YouTube? I almost peed my pants when I saw that number. I was like, what the hell? And last but not least, do not forget to share this episode with your fellow Iron Flame friends. If you have a friend who you would fly off of Terran, land on Iotrum, run up a Wyvern, jump onto Sleek, and jump into midair for, this is the episode to send to them. Thank you all so much for joining us. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Dive deep into beloved lore. Fantasy. Damn it. Hold on. <laughs> Forgetting the word fantasy. Fantasy. Sorry, I just hold on. Okay. There we go. There we go. Okay, go. Welcome to the Gross. Spitty. I for profusely buddy bloody. Profusely buddies. Fuck. Oh my god. There's too many names. God fucking damn it. My mouth. What is happening? I can do this. Okay. This is such a bleh. word. Oh my god. What the heck is happening? Words are hard now? today. <laughs> Circle moment here. I'm going to murder your <laughs> marker. Because I just can't murder. Above, obviously. Hands him. Another. She. And. I'm sorry. I just finished the part one of Crescent City and my mind is so <laughs> not here now. I need to get back here. But the is there an intrinsic link? Link. Link. Everything around. So if you're listening on the.